Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. It's Adam Hall, here with my co-host, Walt Serrato. And tonight, we are excited to be joined by Randy Montgomery, OHSBCA Hall of Famer and former head boys basketball coach at Triway, North Canton Hoover, and West Branch. Coach Montgomery, thank you for coming on tonight, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Walt, it's a pleasure. Well, Coach, I'd like to go back to your days as a high school and college basketball player, as typically our playing experiences shaped the early years of our coaching careers. Can you talk about how your experiences playing at both the high school level and then collegiately impacted those early years of your coaching career? And talk to us about the coaches that you played for at both Salem High School and Youngstown State University. Well, I was fortunate to, to have two great coaches. Uh, one was well-known in the Ohio High School Basketball Coach Association, John Cabas. He was one of the early presidents and, and was responsible for a number of changes in the in the uh, association back in the 60s, mostly. Uh, John Cabas, and uh, I played for him up until my junior year, and then he retired and uh, had a coach... Uh, that came in for my senior year, Roger Rogus from Champion High School, and they had been to the state. There was a big surge because those were big shoes to fill. And uh, But I, I got a great influence from Coach Cavus. Most of the things that I did as I went into Triway and into high school coaching, even in college, you know, he was way ahead of his time in regard to um, promotions and, and uh, just, just things that would help your program to uh, stand out. Some things such as uh, wearing blazers and, uh, you know, an emblem on, on your blazer during uh, school and on game days. We wore those to the games. Uh, we had a pep band that went to home games and away games, and you had to try out. It was a major thing to make the pep band uh, back in those days. Um, we had big crowds. Our, our gym held, I think, 1,900, and uh, it was sold out so much that they put a second deck on at, at the end of my junior year. Um, and had it's now, I think, holds 3,500 in a town that's really about 16,000 people. So you can just tell, you know, the crowds that, that came into those, those places. And we had, you know, we ate steaks after every every away game my entire JV and varsity career. Anytime we, we played an away game, we would always come back and go to Timberlanes, which was a fine dining place, and we'd have a steak dinner, win, lose, or draw. And, you know, that was all paid for by the Booster Club. So those were things that, as a high school kid, I think we thought everybody did, but not too many people did. And I incorporated some of those things as I went through uh, my high school coaching career at Triway and, and Hoover. And. And then in college, I played for another legend, uh, Dom Roselli, who was at Youngstown State for nearly 40 years. And just another innovative guy, different style of coaching, but uh, just a tremendous man, uh, taught us integrity, did things first class. He was a hard worker. And those were just traits that I think any high school coach that wants to be successful, uh, you know, it's, it's an advantageous to be under them. So, Coach, you start your coaching career and your your teaching career at Springfield Local in Mahoning County. Uh, there's a I know there's a few Springfields around Ohio. Uh, right. before, before receiving that opportunity 
to coach with Bob Huggins at Walsh University. Uh, can you talk to us about how, how that all came together and your time at Walsh and what it was like coaching with Coach Huggins? Well, it was a unique opportunity, uh, Walt, Adam. We, uh, when I was teaching down at Youngstown and at Springfield Local, I was good friends with, with Ray Hernan, who had played with Coach Huggins at uh, West Virginia his freshman year. They'd become very good friends. And uh, when Bob would come up to Youngstown to recruit, because there was a great player at that time, a boy named Joe James and Greg Jones from Youngstown Rayan playing, and uh, Ohio State was involved with them. And, and uh, Bob came up with and met with Ray, and, and I just kind of tagged along. We had fun, went out to the games, and spent time together afterward. And, and I was working a lot of camps at that time in the summer different camps. One of the camps I was going to work anyway was was uh, Eastern Ohio, Charlie Huggins's camp when it first started down in Sherrodsville. And so we we struck up a, you know, a friendship and stayed in touch. And as he got the offer to go to, to Walsh, uh, I actually happened to be working down at uh, his dad's camp at that time. And we were re- really getting to be good friends. And, you know, he talked to me about coming with him. At that time, I was quitting a, a job that uh, had all benefits and, you know, retirement and the whole nine yards to just go work at Walsh for, he didn't even know what, what the salary would be, and which was fine because we, we were, I was young and Dan Peters came along, who was also a 26-year-old. We were all, you know, mid-20s and we were hungry to get into college coaching. And um, so that, that part was really fun. The three of us were about the same age. A little, a little wet and green behind the ears, and uh, Steve Burgess came up from from down in Dover, and he, he did our press guide, and it was also did some recruiting with us and helped us the first year to to get things going. But uh, so it, it kind of just happened that way, Walt, and um, you know it was a, it was a fun time. Great guys. Those three years are kind of a blur because we worked so hard, and uh, Bob was so relentless and wanting to get that thing going, and um, did a lot of. A lot of hard work, and I just remember one thing he said the first day that we met was, uh, you know, we're going to do things first class, and we're going to have a press guide, much like the one that that uh, Adam had down in Strasburg there that I think I showed you when you came up. That was Bob's idea. You know, he said, we're going to have the nicest press guide in America. And uh, at that time, back in 1980, to put a, a color press guide together, major bucks. And he said, I don't care what it costs, we're going to do it. Because when we go to a home or we, we see a kid after a game, we're going to hand him that press guide and it's going to separate us from, from the other schools that are recruiting. And that, that really hit home to me. And it, it, was, it was very true. So, Coach, I, I don't know about your feelings on this, but I feel like Coach Huggins uh, is misunderstood by many, uh, unless you have a, a personal relationship with him or have had the opportunity to, to play for him uh, or coach under him. You truly don't appreciate all that he has done for the game of basketball. And you've essentially been in his inner circle since uh, the 1980s. What have you learned from Coach Huggins throughout the years that you feel as though positively impacted the teams that you coached? Well, you know, back in those days, we were we were young. He was 25 years old and a GA uh, assistant at Ohio State, coming right off of a playing career. Uh, as I mentioned, Dan Peters, you know, had been a coach down there at Guernsey, and he was young. and And we all just wanted to to get into college coaching and and to do that and to be successful. At that time, you had to work hard. and And Bob really that was the main thing that I remember about Bob. Coach Huggins, he he's he outworks you. I mean, he really is uh, 
just like Charlie, you know, did you ever see Charlie sleeping down at camp? <laughs> he just doesn't. And um, the whole family was there. I felt like they were the first family of basketball in Ohio and are the first family of basketball because of what they've accomplished. And Charlie, of course, uh, was a leader, you know, three three state championships down there and just, you know, all the things that he did. And, and he took them from Ed McCluskey, who was also a guy over at Farrell, Pennsylvania, who won seven state championships. And my brother was Ed McCluskey's last assistant coach at Farrell High School back in 1972. And McCluskey was uh, a legend. He He's the only guy that beat Wilt Chamberlain in high school. And he was just legendary. And, and Charlie followed him around everywhere for about five, six years. And they became very close friends. And uh, all of the stuff Charlie does, backdoor emotion, all of that stuff is Ed McCluskey. So to get back to your question, you know, the Huggins family impact has been incredible. And being around Bob and Larry and Harry at that time in my life was was so much fun because I had time to to devote and wanted to learn the game and I, I did I got to spend a lot of time around Charlie and got to got to spend time around Coach McCluskey became very good friends with Harry and Larry and uh, the entire Huggins family and you know their outstretch in America in Ohio basketball is incredible and um, I'm just blessed and fortunate I think we all are that I go down to camp every year, take your kids down there and, and see what it's like to, to work hard. Uh, that's Bob. You know, you if you work for him, you're going to work hard. That's what we did. I as, a, as an assistant coach, you know, I, I was living in the dorm for those three years and constant work, constant. Uh, anything that came up, we, we did it. You know, we'd drive to Philadelphia. We'd drive, I drove to Toronto one day to watch a kid play and, uh, you know, he wasn't very good. He was 6'8 and Hugs had heard about him. So, I remember coming back to practice the next morning. I could hardly see. He said, "What? how was that kid? And I, I said, oh, man, Hugs, he wasn't very good. And he goes, oh, okay. And he went on with practice. I was like, you know, I just spent 14 hours, six hours, six and a half hours on the road and watching a two-hour game and six hours back. And it's like, hey, you just went down to Strasburg to, to see a kid. It was but that was that was how you recruited in those days. And there wasn't the Internet. There wasn't uh, film. And we just worked very, very hard to take a program that was a doormat, Walsh. And, um, you know, he turned it into a national power in three years. So, Coach, yeah, that leads right to our next question. You were there for three years. So 1983 rolls around. You take the position, the head boys basketball coach at Triway High School, where you'd end up being for 20 years. What led to making that decision, and how difficult was it to leave the college game behind and, and Coach Huggins? Well, like I said, the, the three years that we were together was a whirlwind. Um, our original plan was to go there and then move on to the next place. And the second year we were at at Walsh, Bob got involved with Youngstown State as as the head coach. That was in 1982, and um, he was a long shot to begin with. But as the process went on for six weeks, he actually got offered the job. Uh, Bill Narduzzi was the head coach, uh, football coach, and he was the AD. And he called Bob and said, you're, you're my guy. You know, I've interviewed all these people and none of them are uh, as good as you. So you're going to be the next coach at Youngstown State. And, you know, we were, Dan and, and he and I were all kind of, okay, well, that's, you know, that's going to be a, it's going to be a nice step. But um, they called the next day and Coach Narduzzi had to rescind the offer saying that the board of trustees had gone over his head and hired uh, Mike Rice from Duquesne. 
and he had he resigned as the AD. He says, I'm not going to be your AD and do do what I did for six weeks, and, and you just completely go over my head. So he quit as the AD, stayed on as the head head football coach. Uh, Pat Narduzzi is his son at Pitt right now. So uh, that that move right there changed all of our lives. You know, instead of Bob staying around another year, because he got frustrated at the end of his second year, his third year, you know, I knew he was going to leave. He was 30, we were 34 and 0, and there was really nowhere to go. And he felt like he wanted to, to get into um, to the Division One level again. And uh, his good friend, Chuck Mayshock at Ohio State, who he had worked with, uh, got the Southern Central Florida job. And he called Hugs and he said, you know, why don't you come with me? And uh, so, Bob was trying to get a head coaching job, couldn't get one. Akron opened or was going to open, and then it didn't. And uh, long story short, he took the job with Chuck down in Central Florida. So, um, you know, Dan was a local guy. He was Catholic and and was really, uh, you know, a a good fit for Walsh. So he took the Walsh job, and and Bob said, you know, because this all happened quickly within a two-week period. So why don't you get a, you know, look for a high school job if you want. And get that on your resume for a year or two, and at least it will be there. So that was the that was the idea. I started talking to people, and I ran into Keith Snotty, who was a friend of mine from Youngstown State. And um, he, he said, "Come on over. I got my high schools open." And he was a big star there. He said he could help me uh, with the interviews and get me in into uh, you know maybe help me with the job. So long story short, that's how I ended up at Triway. I was going to go for a year, maybe two. And just get it on my resume and, and get back into college coaching. And we had, we had a lot of fun, got got married. And um, within, you know, three, four years, I think fourth or fifth year, we went to Columbus. And then we went to Columbus again, final four, three years later. So it was really fun. I enjoyed it. Even though Hugs got back up this way, um, the triway commitment to me at that time was tremendous. They, they created a guidance position, and um, which was needed, but... They still did that because they wanted to have a good program. Um, they also hired my wife as a as a guidance counselor, and Jim Watson was the, the superintendent who had been there for quite a while, and uh, they really wanted a basketball program. Long story short, I was going to go for a year or two, Walt, and then uh, just turned into a long a long run and uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, so Coach, um, like you stated a little bit, you know, nearly twenty years at Triway. Your overall record there, 342 and 95, and 88 and 91, made the state tournament. Uh, 99 and 2000, your teams finished first in the Associated Press Poll. Won an impressive 16 league titles, 12 coming in a row. I am sure that type of sustained success um, can be contributed to a variety of different things, but I would imagine having a strong youth program was one of the keys to your success at Triway. Can you take some time here real quick, share with our listeners how you went about building your feeder systems at Triway? Because I believe anymore, that's the key. Yeah, the uh, that was the key. And that was exactly what we, we did start right away. I was over at the field house in Canton watching uh, McKinley and Blackhawk play. And Blackhawk's coach was John Miller, who was Sean Miller's dad. Sean Miller was in this ball handling group at halftime, and they were phenomenal. I'm, I'm sitting there with my wife saying, wow, this is unbelievable. They brought him over from Pennsylvania. They, they're handling the ball. They're going all through their legs. And, and actually, Sean, I ended up going to 
be on Johnny Carson's show, I think. He was so good and obviously went on to play at Pitt, and now he's the head coach at at Xavier. So I watched that, and I said, wow, that is really cool. So I went back to Triway, and to me, it was a no-brainer. And I don't know why more people don't do it, because it's, it's a great thing to do. You have to spend some time and get the right person to do it. Sometimes if you get the wrong person, it, it just it uh, you know doesn't materialize the way you want it to. So I, I found a guy that would really put the time in. He was willing for me to train him into what we wanted to do. And that thing really, really took off. So that was a that was a great plus for our feeder system. Uh, we also started summer leagues. Um, we we brought a draft to it. We made it a, a, a big thing to play in the summer league. Um, we brought kids from all over the county. Eric Reby was uh, at that time, and and Orville had great players, and we had the best players around playing in our summer league. And it was outside, which is what I wanted. We had a concession stand there, and we had, uh, you know, I just, all, pretty soon the whole town was there. The girls were there, and everybody wanted to be there. So Tuesdays and Thursday nights on one court would be the, the what we called the college league, which we had college players. I had five college teams and our high school team playing, and then each college team had to put, uh, had to put two of our JV guys on their roster and had to work them in a little bit. And they did that. And that's how you worked your way up through that leg. And then, you know, the Triway team and the Hoover team, when we did this, they played against college level teams. So obviously we didn't win very many games in that summer league. We played 10 games. We you know, we usually didn't win any. But boy, it was great, great experience. And then on the other court, you know, you had all the fans and the young people and the young parents watching both. There were dunks going on. And, you know, it was just an exciting time for that month of June. And it really, really blossomed as we went through the years. It got to be a really neat thing to have. And the development that came from that was incredible. Even though we didn't win games, our guys understood what, what the uh, objective of it was. And they also, uh, you know, the commitment had to be there. I told them, you got to be there. You give me just two nights. I don't care about the rest of the week. You got five other nights. You want to play baseball or do other things? Great. But just tell me the two nights so we can do this. And that's how we did it. And it uh, it really blossomed over over the 20 years or so. And, um, and then we had a three-on-three that we developed. Keith Snotty helped me with that. But we got George Lamb Chevrolet to, to get involved. And uh, a guy named Dale Curran, who was my assistant for a while, helped run it. Terry Cook, who was at Triway, also helped with the, getting the sponsor. And we wanted to make it like the Gus Macker. I don't know if you guys remember the Gus Macker back in the... 90s, but this was. I mean, we had 500 players. We had pro clinics. We had hot air balloons. We had uh, baskets that were built and brought in. We had a circus tent. We had little tykes stuff given away. It was just an incredible weekend. So that helped develop our youth. You know, for the whole weekend there in July, everybody was at the parking lot there at Triway, and it, it just turned into a circus. So we've had our leg in June, and then we had that right into July. And then basketball kind of shut down after that, and kids could go on vacation and go to football or whatever. And uh, but it was, you know, a culmination. And then during the season, we had the Big Brothers program, which we developed for each of our players. Our varsity and JV players would each be assigned uh, two two boys in the seventh and eighth grade and ninth grade, and then they would be their big brother. They would have to call them, and they'd have to take them to bowling and do different things with them. And we'd check on them, make sure that they were doing that. And then they had to invite them to a game and bring them into the locker room after the game. And 
so all those things manifested over 20 years into you know a really well-oiled machine yeah you build a program the right way and put all those those pieces in place and the winds tend to follow right so you you have that success at at triway that sustained success so you start to get some opportunities Uh, what was it about the north canton hoover job that that was the right move for you in 2002 well the last game that i coached at hoover i never never had any thoughts of of leaving there um within a two-week period after that so much happened that you know there were a lot of reasons one you know Hoover was uh, had a brand new school. They had uh, they were in the federal league. They were Division One. Um, and uh, Paul Wackerly, who was the girls' coach, was very good friends with Terry Moore, who I played with in college at Youngstown State. And Terry came over to my. They came to our house four times, I think, in in a ten day period. And um, Terry and I had been close for a long time. And he just he you know he really wanted me to come to Hoover. And then Paul came with him and Paul wanted me to come because his son, Brett, was coming up and he was going to be a good player. And uh, he says, you know, I can coach your daughter and you can coach my son. And and then they ended up going to Columbus and winning the state championship for the girls, girls right during that time. So that all culminated happening. And, um, you know, we began to look at it, went over to Hoover. Uh, our families were over that way. The education was was top notch. You know, that type of an opportunity uh, was one that we sh- certainly should look at. So we did. And um, long story short, we ended up uh, deciding to do it. And um, just just for the, for the kids' sake, for my wife's sake, her parents were living right there in Perry Township. Uh, they could come to our games very easily, Dan. Uh, her dad was at all of our games. And, and then for the challenge, I guess, you know, it was Division One, So you were going to be going against uh, good teams. And, and the last reason, the last thing that, 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 I, that convinced me about Stark County, I knew everything goes through Kent McKinley. And when Kent McKinley was going to join the Federal League, I knew that was the key. Because if they stayed independent, they had such a, a mind game over everybody in Stark County, except Jackson at that time, that I knew it would be years before Hoover could get mentally past that block. And when they started playing in our league every year, when we played them to home and home, then I knew that what would happen is happening now, I think. People are catching up to McKinley, and it's no longer the mystique, anything like it was in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, I saw that coming, and I really, you know, those were big games. I mean, our, our McKinley games were complete sellouts, standing room only for five, six, seven years, not only at Hoover and, and McKinley, but down at the Civic Center. All of those reasons kind of kind of went together, Walt, and um, you know we just decided to. And they, their their administration was determined to have a basketball program, which is kind of the key of what I wanted to talk to you guys tonight about. Is when you're looking for a job, make sure that that administration is 100% behind you. Because I I wasn't going to go if they didn't. You know, there's too much time involved to. So they they were creating a, a, an extra guidance counselor, which I was a guidance counselor. And that indicated to me that they they really uh, wanted it. And um, the, the things that, that I talked about as being important for the kids, they, they were on board with. I wanted to have our own locker room and, and uh, wanted to have the pep band every game, wanted to make sure we had season tickets for sale, which they thought I was crazy at the time. But I knew that sooner or later, those would be very important things. And yeah, they said yes to all those. So 
long story short, within about a 22, 23 day period, you know, <laughs> we were leaving Triway and going to going to uh, Hoover. So, Coach, I want to ask this next question, and um, you know, I, I just want to go through some statistics from your time at Hoover. Um, while at Hoover, you had a record of, of 206 and 69, uh, as you had mentioned, playing in the Federal League. Some of the top teams uh, in the state of Ohio you're going against on a nightly basis. I, I just don't think people realize how, how, how difficult it is to win anywhere, but then to win in the Federal League is, uh, is even at another level. But you finished first in the AP poll in 2004, named Division I Coach of the Year in that same year. Uh, great amount of tournament success during your tenure at Hoover. And by the end of the 2013-2014 season, you were the all-time winningest coach at that school. Then it happened, okay, like it does to, to so many coaches. I myself have experienced it. Um, you, you were called into the athletic director's office and informed that the school was moving in a different direction and your services were, were no longer needed. I guess take us through that situation if you would, because uh, I think it's important because I I think it happens to a lot of coaches. It happens to good people. It happens to, to good coaches. Um, you know, how did you handle that situation? Was there anything you wished you would have done maybe differently? What did the following days, weeks, and months look like for you as you came to the realization that you would never put on uh, that, that famous orange sports coat that you used to wear on the sidelines as the head coach at Hoover. Well, you're right about the Federal League at that time. You know, during the time I was there, there were four state championships, two by McKinley and two by Jackson. Uh, and we had won the AP state championship. So five of the 12 years that I was there, the Federal League had a Division One state champion. And um, it was a great league. Uh, we had tremendous players. I think there were, you know, and there were Costa Kufa, C.J. McCollum, uh, Kenny Freeze, Egner Henniger, Kyle Young, the Evans boys at, at Hoover, Eric Koblen, and just on and on during that, that time. So it was a great league. They made tons of money. And, um, you know, I feel like we did what we said they wanted, which was to build a basketball program. So I was shocked. You know, I, I was shocked and I didn't know anything about it. I heard it through the community um, from some people that were good friends and, and said, you know, are you coming back next year? And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, why? And so, well, we just heard that, you know, there's some people that say that you aren't. So I called the athletic director and, and um, long story short, you know, it, it, it was a shock. No one ever said you need to get better or this is bad or you need to change this in the 12 years. I don't even remember a formal evaluation of any kind. Now, Don Shimmick was the athletic director and he was he's kind of stoic personality and, um, you know, he, he was supportive. But uh, you, you never got a, you know, you never got a, a, a read from from him, I guess, or anybody that there was an issue. I had retired as a teacher three years prior to that. So maybe not being in the building, but um, it was hard on my, my family more than anything, Adam, you know, um, just as with your wife and your, and your kids, if, you know, my daughter had played there and, and had been my assistant, and it was, it was a, it was a pretty big shock, but uh, you know, things happened for a reason and there were no jobs open that year. I didn't want to stop coaching and my wife really wanted me to keep coaching but there were no jobs that opened in Stark County that year which was very rare so we took a year and just kind of stepped back and and reconnected with people hugs and and Dan Peters and guys who really 
spent a lot of time with me and helped help to um, make you know make sense of things. And then uh, West Branch had called and and one of the board members and said that they would really like me to come there. And even though it was about a half hour away, uh, Doug Phillips, who's the head football coach of Youngstown State now, he was the he was the new superintendent. We were good friends. He's from Salem. I actually co- I actually taught him when he was in the fifth grade at Springfield Local. He's from Springfield. So all those things together uh, enticed me, even though I knew they weren't very good. And they were, the board member said as such, you know, he said, we need a program. We need to get it built. And it's going to be a little while. So we went and I think we won eight or nine the first year and nine or 10 the second. And then we won 16 the last two years. And I think they're pretty solid right now. So I think we did what we needed to do for them and wanted to do and and made some great contacts with kids and, and some great relationships through the years. So I don't hold any grudges against Hoover. And, and I'm very blessed with, with what I've done in my career. So, Coach, I, I, I just, I just want to go back to this a little bit because, you know, a couple of weeks ago I'm in the car and I'm, I'm listening to all the CBS College Basketball podcasts and they're talking about Calipari at Kentucky and his current relationship with his AD um, and, you know, how they haven't spoken in, you know, weeks or months or whatever it is. And, you know, he's trying to get a new facility, but the AD's kind of pushing back on it. How important, I guess, in your career – that coach athletic director relationship how important is it for a head coach to cultivate that relationship with your ad to be on the same page at all times well hugs always told me you know you need to know who's going to make the decision um sometimes it's the athletic director doesn't have the power maybe it's the president maybe it's the uh the trustees just like youngstown state i mean narduzzi was the ad and he had you know he was he went in there and the the uh, trustees went over his head. So you need to know when you go for a job where that power is and if that person uh, is going to support you. And, and at the time I went to Hoover, that's the way it was. I mean, I knew that undeniably until that starts to change. And I think when that happens anywhere, and it happened at West Branch, you know, Doug Phillips left and went back into college coach. And I remember the phone call on Christmas, Christmas night. He said, coach, I'm leaving. I got to go. I'm going back to Toledo. I said, you're leaving. And um, he said, yeah, I got, I just got the itch. I, I, I got a chance. I want to do it. And so that changed the power structure. He was in charge. You know, he was not going to let a firing happen like that. Um, he was not going to let anything uh, negative happen to any of his coaches. But as you know, you know, and it's uh, you've been on that side as a superintendent that you certain places have certain people in charge. And I don't know. That AD down at Kentucky, you know how much power he has compared to, to John Calipari, who has has quite a bit. So uh, that can happen. And, and you just you need to find out where that power structure is. Uh, Terry Moore was on the board at, at North Canton, you know, when they came over to see me. I, so I had all bases covered in that regard for me. But when you're talking about other people, absolutely. I think when you go for a job, you got to make sure they've got, they understand that they've got, you know, some talent coming because the, the honeymoon period goes and, and then they could care less what they've said to you, you know, the first time they met you. There has to be some coming. Now, maybe for a year or two, they'll be okay. But if there isn't any talent coming, then boy, you got a lot of work to do. So you need to know there's some talent. You need to know who's in charge. You need to, need to gauge the interest of basketball or your sport in that community. 
you know, do do your due diligence for sure. And so, yeah, that is very important. And, you know, the AD or the superintendent, I'd, you know, if the superintendent's got the power, then it doesn't matter what the AD thinks, right? I guess. So he's going to tell the AD um, what to do. So you need to know who's in charge and where the power is from. And as Hug said, you need to know who's going to make the decision. Someone's going to make a decision on your hiring or your firing. Coach, you spoke on it briefly about your last coaching stop at West Branch. You were there from 2015 to 2019 before you, you finally decided to hang up the whistle with over 40 years on the sidelines. How difficult of a decision was that for you? And what do you miss most about not being coaching? Well, I answer the first question first, the last question first, uh, Walt. Uh, I miss the kids. And I miss the relationships with the kids probably the most. The practice planning, the attention to details, those things I enjoyed. Um, I didn't enjoy all the other stuff that goes with it, you know, the meetings and the, the, the you know, just the constant barrage that goes with being a head coach. And um, it wasn't a difficult decision because my wife was ill at that point in time. After I got fired from, from Hoover the next year, we found out that she had uh, all early Alzheimer's. She was She was good for four or five years, but she was starting to starting to get to the point where it was affecting her and my daughter was having to be at the games with her and, you know, me being gone all the time. It just, it, it wasn't good. So everything kind of culminated when I got, got 35 years as a head coach and felt like the program was in good shape and, and she needed me more. Um, I just felt like, you know, that was a good time. I, I don't regret it at all. I don't mind. It really wasn't that tough of a decision. I made it within, you know, like a week's week's time after the season. I knew for sure. About mid-season, I knew that, you know, this was probably going to be it because it was getting tougher to make sure she got got to the games and coming home at 6.37 and then having to do a practice plan and do things there when, when she was having trouble, you know, just doing everyday things, I just didn't think was fair after 35 years. So I had enough and, um, you know, certainly uh, she was there for, I think, 793 games out of 805. She missed, I think, 13 games. And we have a handicapped daughter, too. So we had three girls and one of them was handicapped. And she was all those games. She never once said, you know, I wish you didn't have to go tonight or why don't you stay home or that's all you do is basketball. I mean, everything – Every crazy idea I had, summer leagues or three-on-three tournaments or, or clinics or whatever, she said, hey, that's what you do. Go do it. So I don't mind one bit giving this time back to her when she really needs it. Hey, Coach, I I want to talk. I, I, I want to bring that up later, but this is a good time to, to talk about it. But you brought up the rest of your family, you know, your wife, who every time I've seen you, she's been there. Whether it's been at a game or a banquet, doesn't matter. She's there, and, and I remember you sharing the story about her attending your games and not missing your games. And you know, I know, I know, my wife's the same way. Coach Serrato's wife's the same way. I want my wife at my games. I want my kids on my bench, being my water girls, my managers. I think that's important mm-hmm. because as much time as we invest in it, it it does make our jobs easier if our spouses and our kids are invested in it with us too. It makes it harder when the situations come up at Garraway and Hoover, unfortunately, but having them along for the ride does make it easier. But, you know, you had a unique experience having your daughter be your assistant coach at Hoover. So talk to us about that experience. And then how did you find that balance between family and basketball 
even though your wife said, hey, do what you do, you had to find a balance at some point. Well, I didn't do anything else, which is what another thing I learned from Bob. You know, Bob Huggins is basketball, basketball, basketball. And um, he can't talk about other things. He really doesn't want to talk about He, he fishes a little bit, but that's about the extent of it. And um, June know that. June understood that. And um, it, it's certainly uh, a balance that uh, it helps when your wife loves you and loves the sport the way you do. Because I wouldn't have done anything that I've done without her support. I mean, she's, she's tremendous. And, um, uh, my daughters, you know, were just like your daughters. It reminds me every time I see your daughters following you around, it's the same thing that my daughters did. I went to AAU. I, I drove to Columbus for the KFC, uh, state foul shooting championship on Saturday after shoot around and before the district championship game in night in 1996. So we had shoot around. I drove to Columbus Watched Annie shoot free throws. She made 24 out of 25. We came back, played the district championship that night. So that's just the stuff you know you do and you will do, both you guys. If you have kids, you'll you'll do that because that, that's a very limited time. And now we're, we're very close. Annie was, was very loyal. She was a loyal assistant. I had an opening. I was having trouble getting a teacher in that I needed or situation like that. So Somebody said, why not her? I talked to her about it. She said, yeah, I could do it. I said, do you, do you think the guys would respect me? I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll have your back. Don't worry. And she did. She did for two years and she knew her place, but yet she was she was very, very good. And it was a great time that I'll always cherish. And my other daughter, Erin, to this day is, is right here helping us do what we need to do, you know, and uh, was taking Becky to the games and doing all those things when I was coaching my last couple of years there. And uh, because without that, I, I don't know what I'd have done. Yeah. Us coaches, we're, we're a different breed and having <laughs> that support system for family members. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. So that's definitely something uh, that you've been blessed with and something to be grateful for as all three of us here, let, let's be honest. Um, so talking about the players that you've coached over the years, you know, variety of backgrounds, from the smaller town, more rural communities like your Triways, your West Branch, to like we mentioned, the highly regarded Federal League and a large suburban school like North Canton Hoover. What are some of the similarities and differences that come to mind in coaching these different places? Well, similarities were that uh, they were the same kind of kids. I think many, many, many of the Triway kids could have played at Hoover. There are just more of them at Hoover to choose from, maybe a tiny bit bigger physically, but very similar as far as the, the kids were. You know, we, we, we did things. I know, Adam, and, and probably you do too, Walt, is we took our kids to the state tournament every year. When I first started out, I went down to the state tournament with my coaching staff, and we sat there and watched these games. I had a blast. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, the kids ought to see this. They ought to know what we're shooting for. And I went home and, and uh, well, I actually went outside and I see Indian Valley South kids standing out there buying tickets and Charlie's getting tickets for them and they're getting into the games. I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm making sure these kids get in there. I said, exactly. So I, from then on, the last 32, 33 years of my career, our, our kids all went to the state tournament together with us. We got a big mobile bus or a mobile home or took them down, got rooms at the Holiday Inn. And I would get them tickets somehow to get in. And I wanted them to see exactly what 
you know, what that, how special that is to get to Columbus. And when we made it a couple of times, it was even, you know, more, more fun and more exciting. So uh, those things we did at both places, that was similar. Um, we took a senior trip every year before the season started, generally in between football and basketball. There's a week there where you can take your kids and go watch a college practice. So wherever the seniors wanted to go, we'd go. If they wanted to go to Duke, we went to Duke. We went to Carolina. We went to Duke. We went to Syracuse. We went to Kentucky. We've been to Indiana. We've been all over the place, anywhere, Virginia, Michigan, Ohio State, anywhere, West Virginia, wherever the seniors wanted to go, that's what we would do. We would take them all down on Thursday night after school, get off school on Friday, tour the campus, go to the bookstore, go to practice and come home. And then we'd start practice on Monday morning or Monday after school. Practices were held on Monday rather than Friday. At the end, I just did, we just didn't practice on Friday. We started on Monday. I told him we gave everybody an extra day head start. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, so that was a, that was something we did at Hoover and we did that at Triway, and it was so much fun. And it was it was so important to to get to know your kids and for them to see a major college practice. I mean, we sat in the front row and watched Duke practice. I mean, Shostakovich's out there, you know, right fifteen feet from you, teaching Grant Hill how to set a screen. And I mean, rather than me be there, I, I want them to be there. And that, that definitely showed through, and it was a, a, a big thing that we did both places, and kids certainly understood it. We did the Big Brothers both places. We had a summer league, coach, a college league at both places. It was a little easier to do that in Canton because we had Walsh right here. We had Malone right here. We had Stark State here. We had uh, Muskingum even came up, and we had Mount Union. So we had five colleges come in and play in our league, and they liked it because they got to play an extra game in a, in a league. But when they played us, and we had some pretty good teams there, you know, when we were AP champs, you know, we hung right with them. We had the 6'9 and 6'5, 6'6 kids, and and that was just a great thing for the community. So those things were all similar. Um, different differences would be uh, money. You know, you had much easier time raising money at Hoover. One thing we did at Triway that I, I think all coaches should think about is when we when we went to uh, the tournament, the state tournament, the first time we came home and I wanted to have a, a banquet and so forth, they said, there's no money. I said, how can there be no money? We just, you know, people have been lined up for three weeks trying to go to games. And they said, well, all that money went to the athletic department. And I said, well, superintendent said, what do we do? And this comes back to your point, Adam, about having a supportive superintendent. He knew I wasn't happy. And if that continued, you know, I was probably not going to stay there. And he said, well, it's, what do we do? I said, well, give half of the money that was made to that program. If it's softball and they make money back to the school, give that half to, the, to their own program. So they, they set up accounts for every sport. Football makes the playoffs and they go three games in and the school gets a check for 20 grand back. 10,000 of that ought to go right into football and the other 10 can go to somehow we got that passed. When I left Triway, there was over $20,000 in the boys' basketball. I don't think they had that anymore because that was, you know, obviously it took a lot of money away from the, but we were going to, you know, district and regional and, and so forth, and they're making a lot of money, and none of that was going back to the kids. I didn't want it. I didn't want it for my, myself, even though I worked an extra three or four weeks. It still was something that you wanted your program to get. At Hoover, we didn't need that. We had a booster club that we had a tip-off dinner that was a $100 ticket. And you could bring Fly Jerry Tartanian in or Larry Johnson and uh, 
Dick Snyder, just, you know, we brought on Larry Nance. We had tremendous speakers over the years there and, and we made twenty twenty five thousand dollars in one night. So uh, those were the differences, I guess. And so, Coach, you and your wife Becky, that you mentioned earlier, you were good friends with legendary UCLA coach John Wooden. Talk to us about how that relationship started and developed throughout the years. Well, at uh, Triway, I became good friends with Dean Chance, who was a major league pitcher in the '60s. Very good pitcher. He's from Wayne County. And we came, we just gave him really good friends at Triway for those 20 years. And um, he knew Coach Wooden. And we were talking about coaches. And uh, I said, I love Coach Wooden. He said, Oh, he's a good friend of mine. I said, He's a good friend of yours? He said, Yeah, he used to come all the time to watch me pitch. And long story short, he said, Next time I go out, if you want to go, I'll take you to meet him. I said, Oh, yeah, sure. Well, he, he called a few months later and said, I'm going to California. If you want to go to, to see Coach Wooden, we'll go. And I was actually working at basketball camp, and he told Becky, and I, I came home. Becky says, uh, Dean's going to California. He wants to know if you want to go meet John Wooden. I said, oh, wow, that would be fun. But, man, you know, it's the middle of the summer, and, you know, it's going to cost flights, and all. I don't know if I should go. And she says, you're going, and I'm going. <laughs> I already got the tickets. So long story short, she, she arranged that, forced me to go, which I'm so glad we went. Met Coach Wooden, developed a relationship over the next 10 years that was priceless. I mean, he's just, he's, he's an incredible human being. Uh, that, so down to earth, I just, I can't begin to tell you. We took videos of, of our visits out there many times and just, just an unbelievable, in his living room, we're sitting in his living room and Bill Walton's called and, you know, he just came back from the White House one year. He was, won the uh, presidential whatever from George Bush. And what a, what a great man. So, Coach, are there any lessons that you took from Coach Wooden that you still apply to your daily life today? Well, I, I think I was put there on purpose because Coach Wooden was tremendously devoted to his wife. And she died uh, after he retired, 10 years after he retired. They were 75 years old. And he, he writes her, wrote her a, a love letter every month on her death day. And, and he showed us where he kept them. He kept them in a little basket on her bed. And he showed us pictures of him and her and a grand. And just, you could just tell. And he'd start to tear up. And this was 15 years after she died. So I just think that I was put there because it, it, it helps me to kind of keep what I'm going through here with Becky with, uh, in perspective. And just keeping perspective like Walt was talking about, you know, he, he was never anywhere without his wife. He said his wife would, would go with him to the Final Four, and any coach that was there without a, without his wife, she would say, well, see, he's he's catting around. And uh, he had a lot of friends, uh, Denny Crum and, and uh, Lute Olson were two that he said always brought their wives and uh, were always there together. And so anyway, that, that that's one thing I took away from him. Just live what you speak. And, and he certainly, certainly does that. And that, that was the basketball part. Yeah, he would talk. If you wanted to sit and talk basketball for an hour, he would do it and show you his UCLA offense. But that wasn't what he enjoyed. He enjoyed talking about life and pulling out poems and things that he wrote. So smart. Such a smart person. I, at one point, I called him my idol. He said, you shouldn't make a basketball coach your idol. He had a picture of Mother Teresa up on his wall and a picture of Abraham Lincoln. He said, those are two people that you, you could use as your idol, but uh, a basketball coach, he goes, yeah, you know, 
I appreciate it. He said, I certainly appreciate you feeling that way, but those people did way more than I did. Well, coach, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I can remember, gosh, it's been eight, nine years ago, I took over at Strasburg and I, I can remember calling you, texting you just out of the blue. Hey coach, can, can I meet up with you and talk to you? Cause this was my uh, second stint as a head coach, first as a boys coach. And, you know, I had followed your programs while you were at Hoover um, and I wanted to talk to you about how you build a program. And one of the things in our two, three hour conversation we had that, that stuck out was how you marketed and promoted the players and your program. And like I felt at that time, like this stuff isn't being done at the high school level. It's being done at the collegiate level. It's not being done at the high school level. And I feel you and Coach Kramer down at Moeller um, were, were some of the first few coaches to, to do that stuff at the high school level. You know, now I think everybody's kind of caught on like through the social media stuff like, hey, you know, it might not uh, necessarily translate to wins and losses, but promoting your program, promoting your kids, it's extremely important today. And um, I guess, can you take just a few moments, share with our listeners just a few different things you did, some unique things you did to promote your program and the players within it. Yeah, you know, and a lot of that comes back to hugs. Um, you know, we had a billboard at Hoover, uh, Hoover Hoover Hoops, out on <laughs> in the middle of downtown uh, Belden Village there, the Hoover team picture on it, and everybody saw that from the other schools and didn't like it, I guess. But, you know, our kids loved it. Here they are out there on a billboard. It, you know, it wasn't cheap. It was two or $300 for a month, and I think we had it for three months, and some people questioned whether we should do it, but I thought it was good promotion, something to do. Um, the press guide, you know, you saw that. I don't think anybody had a nicer one other than yours now that you had <laughs> at um, at Strasburg was even better than Moeller's, and Moeller was the one that I patterned after. So um, to have a press guide, I mean, it takes work to do that, but but just look at the, how it separates your program from other programs. Um, we made a highlight tape every year, a professional highlight tape. A guy followed us around, and he did all the stuff, and then he edited it, and we'd have a big banquet at the end of the year, and at the end of the banquet, it would be the climax to show the highlight tape for 20 minutes, and kids would love it. Season tickets, you know, we had season tickets. Uh, we had floor seats down on the floor at Hoover. We don't even have them anymore, but uh, people would pay good money to be down on that floor, especially when you're talking a, a big game. So those were things I think you needed. Uh, we had the nicest locker room at Hoover. We had the nicest locker room at Triway that, that uh, probably as good as any in the state. That was one thing at, at Triway I wanted to do right from the start. Built lockers. Now everybody has them. And I know it's it's not any big thing, but it was back in the 80s. You know, when you look at what the locker room was like at Triway. Uh, we had a purple store that sold. We didn't have any stores in town that sold triway stuff, so we started our own. We had 50 items there, over 50 umbrellas, uh, golf balls, just everything you know that you'd want to buy. Even things that uh, you know scrunchies and and things that girls would buy. This said triway basketball on it, and all that did was promote what we did. The more money we made, we put right back into buying more stuff, and we set it up out in the cafeteria. And man, Christmas time, they would sell fifteen hundred dollars in one night of stuff on on the purple store. So just you know, just something that takes a little work, takes some organization. My wife helped run it, and 
We made rocks, big rocks that you put out in your front yard that said Triway Basketball on it. People bought those things, buy them for 10 bucks and sell them for 50, and man, they loved it. And those were things that John Cabas did at Triway or at uh, Salem when I played that, you know, he was really ahead of his time back in the 60s. Uh, but, you know, those were things we did. The Wizards, you know, the Wizards went to the Macy's Parade. They were halftime for the Globetrotters in Cleveland. They, they were at the Ohio State Buckeyes. They were, you know, we had two teams. We had two, two Wizards teams at Triway. They got so good that you had to work to make the top 25. Those kids, every kid that went through Triway's program and Hoover's program when I left were all in the Wizards and uh, the Hoopsters, as we called them at, at uh, Hoover. So, you know, having a pep band, tip-off dinner, just ideas that come into your to your certain place where you are and promote promote what you do. That's all. You know, take pride in it. And uh, It's not self-serving. It's, it's for the kids. And, and that's what I hear back from the kids today, that uh, they certainly remember those trips and the senior trips and the highlight tapes and all the things that they can show their kids now. It's a legacy of so, as such. Yeah, I know, Coach. I can't. Uh, and Walt, Walt was with me for, for three years at Strasburg. And, you know, I, I, I am so thankful that I was able to have that conversation with you because I think that stuff was some of the most important things we did at our time at Strasburg uh, was the media guide, the tip-off banquet, the trip to Indiana, all the gear we would get kids, the highlight taste, because it made it special. It made basketball important to not just the kids, but the community. Um, you know, we, we did a billboard too, and it was a crazy amount of money, but people would drive by and say, why are you doing that? Because it's important. It, it's important. And I, I think sometimes we can get wrapped up in a lot of other things, but this small piece is, I think is so important to building a program, having that sustained success, having those young kids that come to your games, see that. I know you turned off the lights at Hoover. I did the same at Strasburg. Those young kids say, I want to be a part of that. I can't wait till I get to play for Coach Montgomery. I can't wait till I'm in that press guy. You know, those those types of things are so important. So I can't thank you enough. And um, I think you are, you are the standard when it comes to that, those types of things. And a lot of people have tried to model their programs um, after what you did at Hoover and Triway. So that leads us into our next question, which you've kind of given us a blueprint of what you did. And in 2012, you authored a book with Matt Kramer titled The Best Laid Plans of a High School Basketball CEO. It has been described as a must read for all high school coaches, one of the best coaches' manuals written, and a great resource. I've had the opportunity to read the book myself, actually read it a couple times. I would agree with all of those descriptions. It's one of the best books I've read from just a, a, a program building standpoint. And the setup of it is so unique um, because you, you, you and Coach Kramer pick a topic and then he looks at it from, from his level as a coach that's just kind of up and coming, only won maybe 100 or so games. And then there's your perspective as a seasoned veteran having won 500 games. So you get two unique perspectives. I guess my question for you is, how did that idea come about of writing a book? And, and what were you looking to accomplish? And do you feel as though you've accomplished that goal with the book? 
Well, yeah, thank you, um, Matt. You know, Matt got fired at Canton South. It was kind of the same situation. They called him in and he'd been down working out, called him in and said, well, you're no longer the coach. So uh, I, I brought him on at Hoover and uh, he helped me for a year just to kind of keep them going nuts. As you know, you get you get all these feelings of insecurities. And so he was my assistant there and helped me. And, um, you know, he talked about wanting to write a book and he's an English teacher. So he loves to write. And I said, Matt, nobody wants to read about me or no offense, you either. He said, well, I mean, I mean a blueprint about how to do a program. You've done it two places and I've done it and let's, let's throw our ideas out there. And, you know, that made sense to me. He said, I'll do all the writing. I'll just email you questions. You, you respond to what you did and we'll put a book together. And uh, now that made sense because when I started out, you know, I would go to, go to McCluskey's house or go different places. You'd have to drive hours to meet with people to try to, to get ideas where this, there were a lot of ideas that I tried that failed, who were bad ideas. You know, this, these were some things that were good, things that could help you. Just like the hoopsters, you know, I don't, I don't know why people don't do the, a wizard program. That just makes no sense to me. It takes work and you got to oversee it. But my goodness, that, that's what you have to be involved in your program all the way down. And I had great guys in charge, but I handpicked them. And I helped them and I was had their back when they needed it. So that was the idea of the book, you know, to, to, to give a blueprint of what's out there. And we've talked about a few of them tonight, but there's a lot more. Uh, one comes to mind about a, 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 at a restaurant down in um, Shreve, they had placemats. And I said, if I provide you with all your placemats that have triway basketball records on them, will you, will you put them on all your tables? He said, absolutely. So I bought 20,000 placemats and took them down to the Dessessen house and had all triway records, everything, scoring records, assist records, top 10, everything. Well, guess what? When people come in and sit down at the table, what are they looking at? Those kids love that. And it costs like 500 bucks. Coaches can find those people to do that. And that just helps promote your program. It doesn't have to just be basketball. You know, I had a couple of coaches say, we, we, all you care is about basketball, go get Get something for your sport and take them down there. They'll put them out there They'll in springtime or summertime or fall. So that's the other thing. You just have to, you know, shield off when people are. And I, that's one thing Coach uh, wouldn't help me with. You know, when we won the league 12 years in a row, there, you know, it got old. I said, how do you keep guys from getting mad at you or whatever? He said, Coach, he said, we won 10 national championships. You know how many times I was the national coach of the year? I said, no. He said, five. He said, I was the Pack 10 coach of the year eight times. We won at 20. He said, you just have to let your conscience be your guide. You know, if you know you did your right thing, then don't worry about it. And you know what? That helped me so much because you don't worry about it. As long as you're not doing things illegally or, or wrong, who cares? And those are the kinds of things that I think the book can help young guys with if they want to want a source to look for. Yeah, can't be afraid to think outside the box, right? Because oh, Absolutely. We want it to be a special experience, and that's something that I hope every high school kid uh, playing high school basketball at whatever level you're at, I hope special experience for them. They deserve that. Kind of going along with that, maybe more so the negative side of high school basketball, 
What concerns you the most about the high school basketball landscape moving forward here in the 21st century? Well, the biggest thing right now that, that concerns me is the de-emphasizing of the state tournament. That's what really energized me. When I left Hugs and went to the state tournament and watched it down there, I thought, I want to do this. This would be fun. And it'd be great for the community and great for the kids. And it's not that way anymore. I mean, last year there were 4,000 people. It was the biggest crowd. It's in Dayton now, which is fine, but they need to do some things there that, or do some research on why it went from 12, our, our two games down there were sellouts. People were outside, you know, getting scalp tickets and it's not there anymore. And that's a big concern to me because I don't think it's, it's made a major goal for kids anymore to go to the state tournament. And, um, you know, the AAU factor is, is into that. AAU has a lot of good things. That exposure is fine, but but there's some bad things that come from it as well, and it's starting to creep into high school basketball. They're two separate things. Not just the winning and losing. There's way more to it than that. You know, you want to you want to teach kids about life. That's what we taught told our kids constantly that you will learn about life. You'll learn how to deal with Alzheimer's with your wife through basketball. If you learn from ups and downs and playing Orville and losing at the buzzer, and that's that's what you, you get through tough love, and that's what you get through uh, a program where kids come up through without jumping all over the place or, or, or changing schools and, and getting money to play and so forth. Uh, those are all secondary detractions. I, th- those are two things that I think uh, you know really are concerning to me. I'd like to see that state tournament get back up to at least 10,000 people. Because that, that should be the pinnacle of what we do. So, Coach, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to a younger Coach Randy Montgomery? Well, probably just be careful who's in your inner circles. Um, at Triway, every coach, fifth grade all the way to my top assistant, had all played for me, including the athletic director and today the principal there today. So they knew my faults. You know, they knew I'm that I could be a, an idiot sometimes, but they also knew that I cared and they knew that I was going to work and that I was sincere. If I told them something that we were going to do it. So you got to be careful when you're picking assistance. You got to be careful when you're uh, building a program that, that you don't let people too close. that shouldn't be and, and embrace people that you do want to, that can help. And there are those people out there. So that's a slippery slope and you got to be, I wish I'd have known a little bit more of that. Luckily I, I had it for 20 years at Triway. It was all, you know, all those guys knew me, played for me. And they were, they, I know they were, those kids were getting taught the Triway way. Uh, that took, you know, it took 15, 20 years to get all that going. Well, coach, we'd like to transition now to a segment that we call triple threat. We're going to give you three topics and let you share first thoughts, ideas, experiences, or suggestions that come to mind with our listeners. Are you ready? Sure. Fire away. <laughs> all right. First question or triple threat. In your opinion, what is the most undertaught skill in the game today? And then on the flip side of that, what is the most overtaught skill in the game today? Well, I think today's game is predicated way more on the dribble, and we didn't. You know, ours was always score off the pass and not the dribble. I can hear Charlie Huggins saying that 40 years ago. You score off the pass, you don't score off the dribble. You look at any game today, from the pros on down, it's all coming off a scream and 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 creating your own thing. That's that's individual skill, which is all much better today than it was 20 years ago. But 
uh, it doesn't lend a whole lot for for team play. So that's something that I think is um, I like to see more more pattern, more more work with guys getting the ball off a screen and then creating everything off a dribble. Although I, I like the offenses today. I think the offenses today are creative and fun, but they certainly involve – I don't think there's enough zone play. Everybody's playing man-to-man. And if you're going to run all that high ball screen stuff, we're going to zone you with a 3-2 or a 2-3. And you're not going to drive down through the middle because you're going to run into bowling pins everywhere you go. And nobody's doing that. Everybody's playing man-to-man, which is fine. We taught man-to-man, you know – incredibly hard but you got to be able to play zone too we won so many games in my career with a zone or lost games because we couldn't attack the zone even though we practiced it coach i just want to say walt is smiling right now because i am a man-to-man guy i i, I can't Adam's tell you over there I, when you when you mentioned the zone I, oh I, my god I, I i always ask coach should we put in a zone in practice should we work on it today and he said why you're gonna waste 15 minutes you're going to run at one possession, a team's going to make a three, and then you're going right back to man anyway. So why waste the time? But I, 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 I agree with you, Coach. I, I just haven't come to grips with it yet. So uh, number two, Coach, toughest player you've ever had to game plan for and why? Jerry Stackhouse, because he was the national player of the year. That's he simple was, enough. Oak Hill Academy, we played him when they had Stackhouse, McGinnis, had uh, Nocturne Ninja, three guys going to Carolina, and then they had um, they had two guys going to Louisville and one to UNLV. So those guys were really good. It was a tough to yeah. game plan to them. You weren't going to play un- them man to man. I can understand that. The third one, Coach, I'm 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 interested in your opinion because um, I know uh, you weren't afraid to go four corners to win a game. You weren't afraid to do whatever it would take to win a game. I can remember coming up to West Branch. And scrimmaging early on, you talked about those first couple years when maybe the talent wasn't where it would need to be. We're in a scrimmage and you pull it out and go four corners. And my guys look at me like, coach, what are we going to do? And me being stubborn says, he wants to hold it, just sit back. Um, But the shot clock, you know, it's getting a lot of traction. Good idea or bad idea for Ohio high school basketball? You know, I'm not afraid. I get that question all the time. I I don't. I'm not against a shot clock. I'm not, I, I don't want anything less than 35 seconds because when that happens, the best talent will win. You will never win at Strasburg. You will never win at Canton South because you're going to run into Regina and you're going to run into teams that are going to beat you because they have the best talent. St. V, uh, you know, the Molars, people that have great talent, McKinley, they're going to win. And it's like the NBA. The NBA, who wins? The teams, it's a talent-driven league. So if you had a, a shot clock of 35 or 40 where you don't want stalling, I get it. That's fine. We never stall. I can't remember ever stalling in a game. But I can remember taking 30, 40 seconds like Coach Von Kennel or, or you know, just being deliberate because that's discipline. That's also teaching you about life. I'm probably wrong again, but I would say – um, it's a bad idea to have a, a shot clock, anything less than 35 seconds. And if, if somebody holds the ball on you and you don't like it, get, get out and guard them or put a 1-3-1 one, one on them and trap them or, or put a full court press on That's what people did to us. If we tried to hold the ball, we never saw man-to-man. They were up in us in a diamond press, and they were making us run, and it was a game of chess. We became more disciplined and 
had to had to make sure that we handled the ball well, but you'll never get to Columbus unless you got talent with a shot clock. So that that's that's where I feel on it. Coach, thank you for that. Uh, we do have one more question before we wrap up the podcast here. Um, but before we get to that, I, I know in a couple weeks, uh, really excited about this. I know you are too. Your second book's going to be released. Take a few moments, uh, share with our listeners a little bit about the book, where they can purchase it, and also, Coach, if you're willing, please share your email address as well because I'm sure some of the individuals listening to this podcast may have some questions about developing a youth program, promoting, marketing your program. So if you could just put all that into one answer for us. Sure, and I'd be glad to do that, Adam. You were you were one of a number of guys that actually really – took the time to do that. And that's what I did when I was learning. I spent an hour in Ed McCluskey's basement. So um, yeah, the the book is going to just have additional things on there about picking a staff, about uh, scouting, about doing some things, um, getting fired, you know, how to handle that, just like you you asked. Um, Just different things that, um, you know, expand on, on the book from before. It'll still have you know, things from the, the, the previous book, but, you know, we each had 10 more years of coaching. So, and they were unique years, just as you know, you know, your, your, your changes from time to time and, and year to year. So you just don't know how that will go. But um, so, yeah, I, that's what I would say. And then my, my email address is randy.montgomery73 at gmail.com. And if they email me, I, I'll be glad to forward any of the things that they'd like to see or, or talk about some of this stuff more in depth that you'll find that some of it, once you start doing it, it, it will blossom. You know, the three on three tournament turned into a, we had 10 billboards around Wayne County. I mean, the, the, they just got into it and it was amazing. Some, some ideas you think are really good die on the vine. So you have to, you have to, uh, you know, make adjustments to certain things. And that's that's really what the book was about with some adjustments in the second edition. So coach, the title of the book is what? Uh, this one is A Coach's Life, A Coach's okay. Life, um, which it's it's all about being, you know, a coach and what we do, what you do on a Sunday night here. You know, you go, you're right in the middle of your season and you and Walt are, you know, doing this. I'm sure your wife could easily say enough, but she isn't. She's saying you love it. You're good at it. Have at it. And sure. That's what a coach's life is all about. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put uh, a link to where you can purchase that in the podcast notes, along with Coach Montgomery's email as well, uh, for anybody that'd like to reach out to him. So, Coach, uh, last question. Uh, I asked the same question to Coach Tom Barrick um, when we had him on the show. Um, You've had a remarkable career, Hall of Fame career. You're in multiple Hall of Fames. Resume speaks for itself. However... There's, there's one thing missing from the resume that I'm sure you would have liked to have on there, and that's state champion. How much does it bother you that, that you were never able to win that last game of the season? And do you feel as though your coaching career is incomplete because you haven't and you didn't win that state title? Well, it didn't really. Um, to be honest, it, it doesn't. It, it certainly is something that, that you dream about. Uh, for me, getting to Columbus – was something that would have, um, I think, affected more, um, you know, than a state championship, to be honest, because going to Columbus, winning that regional championship and seeing that clock tick down and getting to take the whole town for a whole week to Columbus, those were two experiences that I think were absolutely incredible. 
Um, winning it would be icing on the cake. You also have to consider where you coach. You know, some places are easier to win a state title than um, than others. And I don't think Triway was an easy place to win a state title. And I don't think Hoover was an easy place to win a state title. Could be done, but you know, it was going to take a lot of a lot of work, some talent. You got to be good, lucky, and smart. And um, we did that for a lot of years. We won seven district championships, seven times, which is once every four years or five years. We were going into the to the regionals. So uh, that's that's an accomplishment that I'm proud of our kids for, and I'm proud of the um, you know just what they've accomplished that way. But going to Columbus twice was was really good, and then winning two AP state championships, going through or three three. Uh, Three undefeated seasons. I mean, that's to me, that's that's not easy. <laughs> you know, to win twenty straight games and get up every game when people are waiting on you, and and we did that. But to go through the tournament is is a whole other animal too. So you know, you just have to be grateful and thankful. And I sure sure have been blessed with some great kids and some great players and great assistant coaches. And- Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at OhioBKCoaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.